Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. So, Guy, Nick Mason, Sourceful of Secrets, of which we are um, two-fifths, right? Are, we're going back out on the road in the summer across the UK. We are. We're, it's all of June, so brace yourself. What's it called? It's called the Set the Controls Tour. What a brilliant name. Who do you uh, think could have come up with such a great name for a tour, Gary? I wonder. I think yeah. I'm looking at him, right? But then right. I did come up with uh, Nick Mason, Sourceful of Secrets. You did, and in fact, that came up in a podcast then because you were inspired by Woody Woodman's U-boat, weren't you? I was, yes. Anyway, anyway, but enough of that. So... Join Nick, Guy, Lee Harris, uh, Don Beacon and me as we celebrate the early years with, you know, that incredible, it's an incredible body of work, isn't it? The early Pink Floyd. It goes up to just before Dark Side of the Moon. It goes up to 1972 with all the film soundtracks, all the Sid stuff, stuff you've never heard, stuff that no one's ever heard, frankly. obviously. Echoes is the big sort of, you know, uh, what is that? What would you call it? Magnum Opus. Yeah, I love a Magnum, don't you? Yeah, I never met Magnum. (laughs) (laughs) Um, anyway, tickets are on sale now and you can buy yours at uh, myticket.co.uk. And Kilimanjaro Live presents Nick Mason's Source for the Secrets, the Set the Control Tour. Hi, Guy. Hello, Gary. How are you? I'm pretty excited, Andrew Lou Golden. It's, this is a big one. This is a big one. I mean, as Andrew Lou Golden, he kind of, you know, wrote the book. It's sort of him and he did. Brian Epstein and Kit Lambert and Chris Stamp. Those are, those are well, the names, yeah. aren't they? That's right. Peter Meaden, does he fit in there? Not really. Um, although Don Arden does, although in a very different way. So basically, this is the birth of rock and roll. This is Mount Olympus. And rock and roll is being invented up there by these guys. And he's the youngest of all of them, isn't he? He's even younger than the Rolling Stones, who he's about to manage. That's right. And he was, I mean, he was literally writing the book as he went on, on what you did. You know, I always wonder with Andrew, because he went on, obviously, and, and, and started the immediate label with small faces and yeah. and, and and Jimmy Page etc but I always wonder with him you know was, did he see himself as being part of the band or was he like you know was he learning from the old school of you know the the uh, the uh, managers that had gone before yeah he started that school of of like I said him and Kit Lamb and Chris Stamp people who I was so in you know I was as enamored of people like that when I was a kid as I was of the bands which is why when I first met you lot in Budapest, I was as excited about meeting Steve Dagger as I was about you lot. And well, in fact, funny. it was him who became my mate. <laughs> it's true, because when we, yeah. when we started as Spandau Ballet, but we weren't even called Spandau Ballet in, the, in 1977, and Dagger was managing us, you know, we all, our heroes were all musicians. His heroes was Andrew Lou Goldham. That, that's who he aspired to be. This guy is full of stories. You know, I'm sure he is. You know, he started off as a, a pub, he worked for Mary Kwan, and then he was a publicist for Dylan for a few weeks when Dylan was in the UK. He was the Beatles publicist for a bit when the very early days. Yeah, and so the what, story of how that led to the Stones' first proper hit is extraordinary. Extraordinary. But but there's also a big story about how you met him. There's It's so mental. Um, I can't wait to get into it, and he'll probably sort of um, dispute the whole thing. Let's get him on. Welcome to the Rock on Tours. 
Okay, guys, I'm ready. That's a big tune for sure. I actually wrote that originally for Tina Turner. Of course, I had gone and found Joni Mitchell down in Florida and brought her back. I've listened to a few of them and they've been really good, man. I'm sitting in the back of the car coming into London. They're brilliant. Thank you guys for still being around, still making music, still being into it, and doing this podcast. It, it's uh, it's fabulous. Well, I get the feeling that us three should go for a pint. That's what I think. I'm in a band now. <laughs> it's called Roxy Music. You know this thing about the 10,000 hours of experience? Oh, yeah, Get good at something. When we recorded Arnold Lane, we'd done about 50 hours. The Rock Hunters podcast with Gary Kemp and Guy Pratt. Keep on rocking! Hello, I'm so glad you're here. Hello. Hello, Andrew. We have met, and the story of how and where we met is so mental, I'm not even sure it really happened. Can you do it in a paragraph? <laughs> I can't. Well, yes, it was. I had, in 1991, I arrived in Bogota from New Orleans, which is a whole other story. Yeah. And I was staying with some friends um, who I knew through Chucho Merchan in London. Don't pronounce his name like he can. Chucho Merchan. You're right. Sorry. Yeah, yeah. please. Well, I've, you got me worried. I'm rushing it. He's a fabulous musician yeah, and animal rights activist in Colombia. Anyway, so the, the, these people I'm staying with, they say, listen, our friend runs a, run, has a radio show. Why don't we go down there and hang out? And I'm pretty smashed and discombobulated. Was it Willie? Yeah, I, I think I think that's right, Willie, yes. Yeah. And I go down there and then I'm thrown on air and the other guest is you. And you and I just stand, we're standing around a mic for hours, just getting wasted on air. Just having this, this sort of chat that people Only in that air? state do, getting to know each other on the radio. Right. Now, after which we repaired to your your fabulous Bondian penthouse apartment. That's where I am now, yes. Is that where you are now? Yeah. Which was just... And this is my first day in Bogota, and I'm just thinking, this place is fantastic. <laughs> so there you go. <laughs> well, that's how I felt 45 years ago, and I, it's still fantastic, without being on air. So is Willie still around? Oh, yeah. He's um, some of the people he was partners with kept doing the air and they're no longer with us. Um, but he uh, <laughs> he is on the coast uh, uh, for the most part, you know, taking it easy. He's good. Oh, brilliant. Well, send him my love. I most certainly will. Andrew, it's great to meet you. You know, we were talking before you came on um, how when in the 70s, when when you know, I was 16, 17 and a, had a band uh, and one of the slightly older kids at school who who said, can I manage you? You were his hero then. You know, my heroes were Bowie and wh whoever it might have been. But right. he wanted to aspire to this great sort of manager who had flair and charisma. And that was that was you. Did he get to that place? He did get to that place and he, he still looks after my publishing 40 years later, 50, 45 Oh, well, that's later. good. Um, yeah. And yeah, <laughs> but I guess we have to go back to to you and what London was like before rock and roll, British rock and roll was invented. I know that... that, that can, can we stop halfway yeah. back there? And, and I mean, your movie, your Cray movie is still my favourite. Ah, <laughs> thank you so much. Well, that's nice. I don't know why... I compare it to, but there's a sort of John Borman film with Marcello Mastrioni called Leo the Last. And for some reason, I sort of think that both were filmed in the same manners. You know, M-A-N-O-R. <laughs> no. Yeah. Like, uh, <laughs> it, it, was, it was a delightful, delightful film. I mean, 
legend was all cosmetics um, and Dusty Springfield, but your film nailed the little about that life that I knew. Well, that's great of you to say, and I think a lot of it is Philip Ridley's script. Of course, I haven't seen Legend because I'm too bitter and twisted to ever watch it. <laughs> oh, I, I felt that way about performance. Ah, ha, ha. ah. <laughs> because I was, I knew, no, I was sure, I knew that James Fox was doing me. That's interesting because James Fox's part of that in that in performance of the gangster was one of yeah. the, the things I, I I I went to to research Ronnie. You know that was yeah. that that's an odd connection. We're only two steps away from each other here. Yeah. <laughs> and and of right. course you'd left by then, hadn't you? You you weren't part of the band by the time performance was filmed. Oh no, performance. No, I did have the squalor of Donald Camel coming into my office in around 65. Um, and he was brought in by another nice junkie. Um, and I really <laughs> wasn't ready for, to ask the Stones to, I mean, here it's in the concertina of time, you know, three or four years later they were doing it. But I didn't really like that underbelly, the idea of going into that underbelly, which performance was because come on mate we've only had two number ones <laughs> now you want us to turn and shit on it you know yeah, yeah. Um, he got his way um you know a few years later um with that movie uh and i'm glad i wasn't around for that it's interesting isn't it because you say that was 65 and yeah. yet the 60s that we see in performance was only just kind of being born then there wasn't there wasn't really the sort of hippie bohemia Certainly with it the Stones started, or anyone. Yeah. I don't know. I think it kind of started at the end of 66 when the public started taking drugs. Because <laughs> that made a huge difference. Yeah. Um, if they could get them, though, outside of London. That wasn't my problem. You know, <laughs> what's, but I guess what that film touches on, what that film touches on is the merging of class that was going on in the 60s. That you know the the middle class rock and roll kid was not that far away from from the working class gangster. They were all in and out of each other's beds. You know, you had Bailey, no, Bailey Stamp, and, yeah, and, got, yeah. and Kane, all calling themselves by their surnames, which is a very sort of upper class military thing to do. Yeah, well, yeah, right. And, and rock and rollers all hung out with Toffs, didn't they? You know, that was. Did that begin with uh, you? It changed for me in 66 when the when the Stones sort of got their first feeling tired and came back to England and then a load of well-spoken velvet jackets de descended on us and <laughs> life was never the same. <laughs> Talking of velvet jackets, Chris, there's, there's, there's a, my little intro. You started in fashion, didn't you? And I just wondered what you wanted yes, to be. You know, there was a... You know, when I think back at the the times, uh, as far as fashion and, and youth culture was concerned, you go back to the fifties and the Teddy Boys, and then you know maybe the Beatniks. But what was happening? What did you? What was a young man meant to look like in in pre rock and roll? Well, it's more to it is where could you get anything near the way you might want to look? I mean, okay, CNA still exists in England, right? Does it? It does in Europe, but not in England. Okay, but well, you know what I'm talking about. Yeah, yeah. And I mean, you yeah. Peter Meaden, who I hope you're both familiar yes, with. Yes, of course, of course. Uh, he made, made the Who mods. There you go. Right, he used to take me up to CNAs between uh, nearly by Marble Arch, and we'd go up and 
ferret around the fourth or fifth floor and you would find amongst all the stuff for some reason american unlined sort of jazz um sort of Adi Shep, Armour Jamal type suits. And there might be 10 or eight or 12 in the back and you grabbed them because they were a good price, a price you could afford. And because the only other choice was a place next door to Cecil G's on Shaftesbury Avenue called Austin's, which catered for all oh, the yeah, jazz musicians and John Paul Jones. Uh, like, uh, so, I mean, it, it was a question of where you could get it. And that's why places like... Uh, well, the East End did better, I think. Vince's, we can't forget Vince's, who because Vince's a Fubus place, because they gave Sean Connery his first job. Right. Um, you know, he was a model. He was a male model. Yeah, but, yeah, and, right, uh, right, he, right. And his briefs are 12 and 6, you know, like. Um, so, <laughs> I don't know. It was somewhere between, yeah, um, I don't know, Lawrence Harvey and... Um, Stanley Baker. John Stephen, did he change much up in Carnaby? He was amazing because I remember the day that my, um, God, there's two words I have difficulty with still, first wife, um, the, um, <laughs> that you could, uh, and with Chrissy Shrimpton, with Mick, you could buy, you could, we could all wear the same trousers. You know, he didn't have, there was no, no need to alter them. Mm -hmm. He just had an antenna that understood the geometry or whatever it is um of the body and he cut he or whoever cut oh no maybe he cut he cut incredibly i mean to go to be able to go into a shop and go well you try them on see if they work for you and they did it was amazing and he was ambitious beyond uh john reed who came out of a, another similar area um outside of glasgow right i mean he well, both of them were, were relentless, you know, yeah. and John Stephen at the time, I tried to um, get work from him, but he just wasn't having it. It was Mary Quant that you went to, wasn't it? I did. I did. Um, what was happening there when you went? Because this is pre the Mary Quant that, that we know, isn't it? The sort of... I don't think so. She already had was it... the, uh, the two stores, one um, in Knightsbridge called Bazaar, and the other one in King's Road, um, you know, on the corner of that square, yeah. opposite where Joseph Losey used to live. And so she was already going. I mean, you got to remember that even, say, when I worked for her, which would have been 62, 61, 62, these people, like her, like her and her husband, Alexander, and Vidal Sassoon and Bailey, were already had done the first British invasion in New York. Right. You know. So they, in a way, they opened the doors and, for the Stones and, and bands like that. I don't know. In there was America. another guy called Nicky Haslam who. Um, yeah, we, I, was, we both know. Oh, Nicky. We know Nicky. We know Nicky. He was. I, he was there before yeah. everybody in New York. <laughs> He'll be really glad. He, for I you think he was the him. editor of a Huntington Hartford um, magazine. I can't remember the title, but it was like you know, basically based in entertainment and life as it was great. So you have that. Um, uh, incredible thing. I mean, Bailey was was there already, man. It's it's like it was beyond the fringe Sorry. had taken New York by storm, hadn't they? Sorry, around this time, as opposed to rock and roll. Yeah, I, you know, I've got huge problem following, uh, you know, that or what yeah. came before and what came after. I mean, you know, 
Joseph, oh, you mentioned Joseph Lowsley living on uh, opposite Mary Quant in Kings Road. Was that in the house that he shot The Servant, the movie, the Dirt Bogart? I believe it was. It was I believe it was. Which is another movie yeah. about the, the the blurring of classes, yeah. isn't it? Yeah, but I mean, you know, it all, all of them generally come under the line of whether you're dealing with drugs or drink, or first you take them, then they take you. Because mm -hmm. by the time you get to the ingredients of performance, whereas in 1965, had, had we invited donald campbell into our lives we might have gone this is really strange isn't it right but by 1967 or 8 it wasn't strange yeah you know yeah, the yeah. concertina of time had bunged out quite a few chords rapidly but it seems like you always had that feeling i wonder if this was something about the burgeoning of the age was that it seems because you, you just went and knocked on doors right you clearly already had this feeling there was no way you couldn't go I don't know if that was something that was in the air, that everything was available to everyone and you could do I that. Don't or... know. I think every one of us thinks it was only happening to us. <laughs> yeah. You know, I mean, I, I know that recently yeah. I saw Terence Stamp and he said, yeah, I just thought I was the lucky one, you know. Right. You were right. part of an engine, I guess, of, of kids who didn't have to join the army anymore. You know, like my dad was conscripted. You, yeah. You, you, that was Bill Wyman. Yeah, so it was mine. You know, you, yeah, that's right. Yeah. You didn't need no. to be conscripted and you had that energy, but and you were looking for a uniform. That how and how, yes. Um, yeah, that had a big play in it. You also got to remember that the stoic silence of our parents uh, over yeah. what happened in World War II. I mean, we look at uh, Ukraine now and as it's so close to, all of you folks there, um, and go, well, you got another five years to go, mate, you know, in terms of what our parents... Yeah, yeah. And, and I mean, they were um, silent, except for those, say, maybe like the fathers of uh, Pete Townsend or, you know, who who had an outlet in that uh, music. I mean, I was reading just the other day day oh i know what it was yes somebody sent me kindly um an interview from a few years ago with jeff dexter oh yeah yeah uh, the, the yeah. dj right. at middle earth DJ yeah middle earth. right yeah who because we didn't have all this then i never really had the time to meet when we were all busy right um but it, the article the or the interview was interesting because you know, I used to think of um, Cyril Stapleton and his orchestra, like, oh, God, right? But he was given, saying, you know, in the time that they were playing in uh, ballrooms, which were harp disc jockey, then dance bands, and then little bands like Tony Crombie and things like that, um, he, he gave a lot of cred to uh, Cyril Stapleton, whereas to me, he was just an old tosser with a battle, right. you know, like... Um, but all that thing that I, you know... Back then, if you didn't have a tough friend with you, you didn't walk, and I'm, I'm talking about when I'm 12, 13 or 14, you didn't leave Northwest right. 3 unless you were covered because, you know, um, fisticuffs, yeah. uh, kick and run maybe. But like, you know, if you went into another, or when, when I used to go to where Peter Meaden lived in, in Islington or, or thereabouts, it was like a Stanley Kubrick movie, man, you know. <laughs> but did you, you knew Pete well? Pete Meaden. He was my. He opened up um, Soho and and a lot of other life for me. We did a um, copying basically Vince Fubert's place. Um, we did uh, a, a brochure for 
John Michael and Sportique, which we traced all of the drawings out of Esquire magazine and then put uh, John Michael's clobber. And it was a story about a film director called Ted Wayne, who drives his Thunderbird from Elstree in London to the south of France. And he picks up this boy on the way, you know, and the boy is wearing Guignan <laughs> shorts that come in pink, blue and mauve, 59 and six, you know. But how many that. boxes did that tick? Americana, you know, swinging London almost, and then and France, you know. All that, yeah. And, Pick up a boy, a bit of death in Venice in there. It's fantastic. Yeah, there you go. But he, he didn't pay us because all of his homosexual clients were offended. Um, yeah. Uh, would would, would, Pete, would Pete have taken you to the Two Eyes Club maybe to see the shadows? No, I, I went there before I met him. That's not wasn't really his. Um, uh, I mean, I got. I mean, I've witnessed like Vince Taylor. Yeah, yeah. Vince uh, Taylor was a massive influence on Bowie. Who met, Ziggy Stardust was born yeah. out of Vince Taylor. Yeah. Only once, I think only once he started taking acid. I mean, Vince Taylor had. And, and yeah, yeah. you know, I, mean, when I saw Vince Taylor in the um, two eyes. I remember his pledging my love and brand new Cadillac on Parlophone. Then the next time he was standing outside the Ad Lib Club, like, you know, not really in love with all the clients of the Ad Lib Club, be it the Beatles, the Stones, the Kinks, the Who, or whatever. Mm -hmm. And then the next time, then then he was in France, and it was just amazing um, what happened to him there, considering he couldn't sing. He lost his mind, um, didn't he? Yeah, yeah. Bowie, Bowie, uh, Bowie saw him suddenly, I think, in Tottenham Court Road, trying to decipher some strange map that he'd exactly. imagined. <laughs> yeah. But there's always, you know, that. But the... Um, the sporting thing was great because uh, then Pete, Peter Mead and I received a letter from uh, an American manufacturer who had seen our brochure and was delighted with it. And would we meet him in Liège? And it was a come on, man. There was no one there. Right. And I just, you know, remember we had half a bottle of brandy between us, no overcoats, because generally at that time you don't need overcoats, even though it's cold. Right. I mean, well, with you two, what's the first age you got an overcoat? Yeah, no, you're absolutely right. Because, you know, that's, as that's kids. A good point. Yeah, you're right. You're right. Ki ki 20, yeah. Yeah. My kids now, you're not going to. Well, when out I like did, that. it was a style thing. It was a 50s look oh, thing. Funny. Rather you couldn't than... fucking afford an overcoat anyway. Yeah, right. Second hand. Yeah. 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 But, but was there, I mean, I'm, I'm guessing that, that that sort of shadows rock and roll had kind of begun and the Beatles had begun before you found the Stones, right? Oh yeah. I mean, I did publicity for the Beatles for three months between um, January of 63 and April of 63. So I did the tail end of please, please me and the beginning of from me to you. How I mean, I actually, because their operation was still in Liverpool, right? So you right. were basically the, only the, reason the, I got the, 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 the London, you were the, guy on the ground in London. Yeah. And yeah. I used to have them every 10 days. They were they stay in that hotel and um opposite the Royal Court Theatre in Sloan Square. And um you know uh when I look back at it, you know, as or, or as I attend occasionally some of those meetings in LA and the first thing that came out of um, when I went to one out of Ringo Starr's mouth to me was hello Andrew Nice to see you without the horns. 
in because in your first book there's a story of you going to record mirror and employing like it is like something out of performance you're basically kind of hanging people out of windows it seemed almost. oh no that was that was yeah um but it's more <laughs> theater than than the actuality right i mean um but no but but the point about ringo and george is even then nobody was interested in them and so the horns, whatever, I, you know, you remember that people remember everything. Yeah. You know, I mean, it wasn't... Well, during... you certainly do. <laughs> You've got great records. Yeah. But was, were the journalists still, were they from another generation? Were they, were they sort of poo-pooing what was, what was going on as light entertainment for kids and it's not going to last? Or there were no serious rock and roll yeah. journalists. I mean, the first time that the, we did a photo session on the River Thames, just a few blocks or one block from where the stones mostly lived edith grove i mean you know they all go i mean you've got this you know as we live in a not not this conversation but as we live in a world were i doing a normal normal interview you would ask me the question and supply the answer and i'd only be able to reply yes or no right mm -hmm. you know which is to see michael kane put up with that a few years ago i said what the fuck is he doing walking on the box like you know um, I mean, anyway, yeah. back in. So, Michael, you loved making that film. <laughs> yeah. Okay. But anyway, we're, okay. Anyway, so we had some photographers on the banks of the Thames. And oh, and uh, the point I was making was this image now, uh, these regurgitated interviews that so-called journalists put up on everything and so-and-so, Mick didn't like this, and John Lennon thought, I want to be your man, was a load of crap and all this. Like, the journal, the photographers there, I actually heard one say, God, they're dirty. And I knew that, oh, this is good. What would have happened? What would the Rolling Stones thought of me and themselves had I said in the beginning, I think you're really good, man. You can be the opposite to the Beatles. I mean, yeah. Come on. <laughs> Which is the legend that you, you yeah, apparently oh, did. Yeah, that's, you know, and this, and for, not unfortunately or fortunately, the way it is because of um, how these things, if you're in it for the business, you do so many things on rote. As it, I mean, they the actual acts buy into that or let it let it go when um i mean at, at the time when we got the song i want to be your man if you study the reviews if you look at the reviews of the time no one's there was no clash there was no oh god the, the you know the rolling stones had done a beatles song nobody cared it yeah. was just mm -hmm. matter of fact like the wars in kenya and cyprus or whatever three lines of you know, Right, and that was it, right? But just yeah. jump back a little bit, because, you know, where you met Brian Epstein, and because and, before yeah. then you also was a publicist for, for Dylan for a bit, weren't, weren't you? Yeah, especially, you know, the man, especially what's happening to him this week, um, you know. With the robo sign. <laughs> yeah, right, you know. Um, but nobody wished each other bad or ill will or schadenfreuden at that time. I mean, I would have journalists who wore suits the tobacco still dripped down on their shirts and things like that who weren't threatened by the likes of me or the you know people right they they i think they were bored with um uh, no you can't be bored with alma cogan I, i'd like to name, name think of somebody else. 
Nobody was ever bored with Alma Cogan. In fact, when I was in court over Media Records in the year 2000, the only one of my records that the fucking judge, he's dead now, like um, was interested. He said, oh, he did Alma Cogan, <laughs> right? You know, um, <laughs> I would have fucking earrings in if I'd known, right? You know, I was trying to straighten up and look like Terence Stamp in the hit, but you know, no such joy. But the velvet boxed Alma Cogan collection, because they had to have all my records in the in the court, um, that excited him. The small faces no. Get back to wow. get back to Dylan where you yeah, how that yeah, happened. Okay. Because oh, so, the, 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 this lost TV show is extraordinary. I'm sure and a lot lot of people I think just don't know about this. Yeah, I mean his okay. background the director, appearance. The director, Philip Savile, who I believe was embroiled in some scandals later on. He was at BBC then, then I think he went to Granada. But he had been on his summer holidays in uh, New York and he'd been to a lot of the clubs um, in the village and Cafe War or whatever. <laughs> all, yeah, all of that, right? You know, um, yeah. the girls with the baskets. Um, and uh, he he was this big, but how did he sing? Um, you know, uh, and he and he saw Bob Dylan. So when he was doing this um, house on Carroll Street, yeah. Uh, and they, they, but what about the music? And he actually just said, well, I saw this guy in New York who was really good. Perhaps we could have him doing the background music. And, you know, I mean, it's a lovely overhead, you know, um, Dylan, a guitar and a manager. And so they came over and they um, appeared in this thing. I just went up and knocked on the hotel door. Like, so how? I, so sorry, just to, to clarify for people, this is basically this is a TV drama, and there's a scene Jack in a Hunter, club, and Bob Dylan, yeah, and and Bob Dylan is the guy sitting in the background playing. The music. It's nothing to do with him. Yeah, no, nothing to do with him. Right. I don't even know what he's playing. Man. You know, I think it was probably some kind guy like Jack Hutton or some, someone like that or Max Jones, uh, the melody maker, who told me because that was the paper that carried all the Bob Dylan stuff. I mean, all the folk and the jazz stuff. I mean. Disc and enemy, they could care less, right? But um, I think they were staying in the Cumberland Hotel. It's been billed as other places. But anyway, I, all I remember, I mean, these days now, I think it might have been the whiff of marijuana that, <laughs> that, you know, that I walked into their hotel room and it was magic. I mean, I was watching this conversation between these two people. Um, Albert Grossman, right? Yeah, yeah Albert Grossman. Um, and I kind of knew what I what I wanted to do from that moment because I'd been up till then, well, in the fashion, I just got out of it. I'd had people, oh, I got out of it quite a lot, but um, uh, it, the, I, I had a piddly pop period with nice people like Brian Holland, Brian Highland, um, and Johnny Tillerson and people like that. Um, and this was like, whoa, you know, they were finishing each other's sentences. They had a camaraderie that regardless of how Dylan attempts to repackage it now, um, was, 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 was amazing because remember music in England was still something that basically people wanted to sweep under the rug. It was not, you didn't admit you did it if you, you know, in terms of record companies and you never saw records. But this was serious. But anyway, this was serious and this was artistic. It's, it was all hustle, man. 
Right. You know? That's what you liked about it. Yeah, I did. Yeah, it was it was it was a conspiracy. Um, and uh, I mean, look at Dylan now. He's still hustling. Yeah. God bless him, because yeah. every time he does it, he changes the rules, whether it was Chronicles um, or whether it was his, his classic interview on 60 Minutes with Ed Bradley or. Um, or the Scorsese documentary recently where there you go. They, they fictionalized. Or his art. So was Dylan like that character that we know from the Penny Baker documentary in 19, I think it was 65 when he when he came back to England played the Palladium uh, Yeah. He was he was he was still that he was fully formed. Oh, without a doubt. I mean this is um his idol was little Richard. Wow. You know. Now that's not that strange and if you think of when We all um, thought it was Woody Guthrie. Yeah, I think that's just usable fodder, you know. No, I mean I was reading about his he, I mean, he did so much homework on Little Richard. But if you look at it, the, little, the likes of Little Richard and Fats Domino, and especially those records out of New Orleans and, spe and then specialty stuff, gave us the language that told our friends uh, who we were, by who we liked and what we listened to, told our parents to stay out of it. And, I mean, okay, heartbreak hotel when that record first came out i'd never stayed in a hotel and i'd never had a heartbreak so that was <laughs> like a magic got you know a fusion mm -hmm. of words like i mean i don't remember english people walking around like elvis presley's um i think 1956 thing i want you i need you i love you but doesn't keith call that that keith calls that year one he says everything's before is bc and everything after heartbreak hotel is there you go. completely completely correct you know, I saw a clip of them on the Arthur Haynes show a little while ago, man. And Keith was moving. He was just so happy to be there, you know, because, you know, I mean, you know how the world was then. You you were on probation with the record company. First of all, you'd be allowed a single, uh, 45 RPM or thing. And then you'd be allowed another one. Then if you've been really good boys, uh, you could have an EP. I mean, Billy Fury, you know, he wasn't given a 12-inch album to start with. They only gave him a 10-inch album. You know, the ones that just had fours, mm -hmm. like the high lows or whatever, right? Um, so, you know, that's how we all got uh, beaten up later over, how dare you ask us for more money for cassettes or CDs? Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, bit get 30, bit get 20, 20, 20, bit get 20, 20, bit get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. 
J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. What was a key thing to you being the guy for the Stones was the fact that you weren't an R&B nerd. No, I wasn't. You weren't. Yeah. <laughs> and so that you could see the big picture rather than, rather than saying, oh, that. I don't, I don't, I don't know, think that's there how was, there, was no, there wasn't a big picture. There was right. just things that had, um, the world before that was in black and white, then it did suddenly go into colour, right? Um, for Dave Clark, it didn't work. <laughs> no, sorry. <laughs> oh, the Tottenham sounder. <laughs> but hey, man, you know, as he knows, I, because um, we discussed it when we first got to America and were basically like the Sex Pistols who could play. Um, the Beatles looked over their shoulders. They didn't see us, man. They saw the Dave Clark Five and Herman's Hermits. Yeah, yeah. But when I say there wasn't a big picture, but all right, one of the, when you, um, um, Gary, when you were talking about the, um, You'd nearly mentioned the birth pill, right? Um, and, and disposable income was just coming in because you didn't, you know, I think, okay, and the national service were all elements that we there was disposable income. Spending five and seven on a, a single was possible. I'm sure, some, you know, with the amount of listeners that you have, some people don't even know what a record is. <laughs> That's true. That's right. I think we have a lot of good old school people on our... No, I'm sure you yeah. do, but I mean, you know. Yeah. Like, uh, well, I hope so with all the names that are coming out. <laughs> oh, yeah, it would help. But we were just avoiding the future, the non-future that we've been promised. Right. It didn't get become a bigger picture until the Beatles appeared on the Ed Sullivan show in February of 1964. Then it kind of got serious. The level of workshops and needed went up. But up until then, it was like, wow, we're not we're doing quite. We haven't had to get a regular job. We have to go. Yeah, we yeah. have to go into the Crawdaddy Club, don't we? Though before then, the year before '63. What? How did you end up going in to see the Rolling Stones play there? Oh, that was the Station Hotel. Was it? Ah, the was it the Station, the Hotel? Station Hotel? Yeah, in Richmond. Yeah. yeah. Um, so places. what was the Crawdaddy Club? Where was that? I can't remember. Was that not? It was the Crawdaddy, the Ricky Tick, yeah, which became the Moonlight Club. The, but it was. It was all. Most of it was seemed to be. Seemed to be West London, wasn't it? It was there was Eel yeah. Pie, there was the, oh, yeah, Richmond, yeah. No, the no, Station you, Hotel and yeah. the Richmond Hotel. You wouldn't have got arrested, yeah. man. You know, you saw you them know. in the Station Hotel first of all. I did because a, a, a journalist at the Record Mirror, another man with the suit and you know fag ends and things like that, um, in the Dehems pub in Sh on Shaftesbury Avenue, um, there was a young writer on the Record Mirror called Norman Jopling. The Record Mirror, we never knew at the time, man, about how wonderfully corrupt it all was. And we just thought, oh, this is good. You know, this is fine. But Decca Records owned half the Record Mirror. You know. Ah. Like, God, I never you know? knew that. No, no I never knew that. No, they weren't telling anybody either, man. <laughs> That's our scoop for this one. So I'm taking it the Record Mirror didn't write about the Beatles very much. Probably less. I don't know how much, because the people who worked there, Peter Jones and, uh, and Ian Dove and Norman, well, they, they ran it. I mean... They were journalists, you know, and there, there was, uh, you, but you have a point. There were a lot of decorats in it, man, the bachelors, right? You know, but Peter Jones, they, he was letting this young writer, Norman Jopling, write about this Rolling Stones band whom he had seen, even though 
the policy of the the newspaper or weekly paper was only to write about those who had records, hence Record Mirror, right? Mm -hmm. And he went, Peter Jones said to me, you should go and you should go and see them. Now, that was a quandary for me. One, because of my, you know, I mean, my idea of R&B was Lieber and Stoller and Pomus and Schumann, right? You know, um, and the R&B thing basically ended up on Pi Records, who were like fourth in the line of, of um, you know, the, the pecking order, EMI, Decca, mm -hmm. Films, and then Pi. And their records never went above 47 or 45. I mean, the, the stuff from Chess that they had on them. Yeah, right. You know, I mean... Joe Brown went to number 10, but that's, you know, um, but, and also <laughs> Sunday was Sunday night at the London Palladium. Right. And mother and she would iron my shirts and we would eat and watch sun, you know, we would bomb the, the Tiller girls. Yeah. All of that. The, the Tiller girls. And then in the afternoon, free speech, friend of the craze. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Lover of Ronnie. Uh, yeah. And, uh, and then Liberace, which kind of changed the English lunchtime, uh -huh. you know, because mothers loved Liberace, you know. And so the idea of going seeing, going schlepping from Northwest 3 to down to Richmond, I'd never been a fucking Richmond in my life, you know. Um, and then my girlfriend, uh, who would be my first wife, Sheila, she told me, because no, I thought, oh, i got to go from Finchley Road into Piccadilly Circus and then out again. And it was just looking horrendous. But no, there were overline trains from Hampstead on Finchley Road that would take me straight to uh, Richmond. And the reason I had to go, I didn't know whether Peter Jones just wanted to get rid of me because I was hustling him in the pub, or he had good thoughts for my future and thought it might be, he hadn't seen the band, right? So I had to go because otherwise, how could I go back to D. Hems the following Tuesday and hustle him? So as I come out of the station and I, I mean, I know you know this from the book, but I, I think the, I cross over and you're walking parallel with the train lines and there's this sort of great, not barbed wire, but a fence. And there's a couple arguing on the towpath um, and they are very attractive, both of them. Um, because they looked like each other. And it was Mick Jagger and Chrissy Shrimpton. And they stopped fighting to let me by. And I had no idea till I got in, right, and um, saw the band, which, as you know, was six people at the time. Right. Um, and, you know, I, I, I kind of had no rules. I mean, I, I didn't go, oh, Willie Dixon's version was better, or they did it, they, their version stood up to Howling Wolf. I didn't know any of this stuff, man, you know. So it was a complete um, uh, Tasami of everything. Had you ever seen anything like it before? Was it musically? Did I'd never seen, seen anything like it before. And I had no connection with any of the music. So that made it all the more pure for me. You know, they weren't mm -hmm. going, there goes my baby, you know, right? And uh, so you, you're, you're automatically the audience. Very good. I remember that. Thank you. And, and did you not, you must have thought, who's managing these guys? Because I want to manage them. Yeah, and it kind of disrupted, you know, I mean, there's so many things that you do then on instinct, like, whereas now, if you, if, if I, if we pick any given subject, what I thought about it in the 70s, 80s or 90s is totally different to now. Yeah, You know, I yeah, can yeah. give it to you, in, hopefully in one sentence, you know, um, and 
you're right. I like that, that I was a member of the audience, which um, I want this. It's no, you know, without knowing, I didn't go, oh, I can be Albert Grossman. But it was definitely that moment, you know, because what I was looking at was um, so different from everything. And I had no qualification about the music. So it was just a, a total pure. Um, right, right. I was converted. Because wasn't cause George Grimelsky had some sort of arrangement, but he was away. Or something was it one of the well you know incredibly he was he you know there is um a line in um almost famous where the character playing i think lester bangs says to the one who's cameron crowe says don't trust these people sorry gary (laughs) (laughs) you know what a miracle you've had the same publisher like okay (laughs) but um (laughs) Because George Gomelsky was being held on a sort of tether, you're nearly our manager, by Brian Jones, who was, you know, I don't want to get into Bill Wyman territory, because, you know, but I mean, Brian was the leader of the group. Yeah, yeah. That's right. Yeah, yeah. No. Which is really funny, because we've never seen that. And it's because, you know, which is a good point we, as well, grown up with the because later on, there's one of the big issues is that Brian's getting more money than than, than the rest of the band, isn't it? Oh, yeah. So let's, not, let's not go there right now. The you know what I like about yeah. the idea that Giorgio Gamelsky is, is, is gets ousted by you, really, because he's away on holiday in Switzerland, apparently. Oh, which he's is... not. Get the hankies out. He was burying his father. Oh, dear. Okay, okay. Because <laughs> I was just thinking, it reminded me of the of of, of Saudi Arabia or something, or, or, or um, uh, actually Qatar. Right now, when when apparently two of their leaders, both of them got uh, were, were were taken over by coups when they'd gone on holiday. That's right, when they gone on holiday to Switzerland. <laughs> <laughs> but anyway, that story's not true. So he was no, he was he was he was arranging the funeral of his father. Yeah, but I think that. You know, he, Giorgio could get excited about a room for with three people, and the Rolling Stones obviously wanted more than that, right? So um, sometimes when something important happens, uh, you know, a moment, it's so overpowering that you blank it out. You do it and you do it well, but I'm believe that at another gig, not not at the Station Hotel, at the one you mentioned, the. Um, and probably Eelpa Island, that Brian mm-hmm. introduced me to George Ugomowski as his brother. Oh, wow. Is that like he's my yeah. brother man kind of thing? Yeah, he's my... No, it's not Neil Diamond. Yeah. No, um, it's... Uh, you know, so he didn't know what was going on. Had he briefed you? Was that like, oh, sorry, I'll say you're my brother? No. Oh, no, no, no. No, no, yeah, yeah, yeah. It wasn't I that... briefed him No, when I found out that through Giorgio they already had a quasi contract with IBC studios because the band's not going to tell you, you know, when you, you're interested, like, you know, we'd like to manage you. I mean, by then I was doing, bringing in the guy who was my landlord in, in Regent street, an agent called Eric Easton. Um, because you right. were too young Orlando. to get a manager's license. Is that right? You were too young to get a manager's license. No, whatever that was. I, I, I mean, what the other thing is you've got to get an act work. I had no idea how to do that. Um, have you heard of a, a lovely villain called Roy Tempest? Then I won't tell you. No, but he sounds like a Larry Parnes stable singer. Oh, yeah. yeah, doesn't he? <laughs> yeah, right. Yeah. But, I mean, I went back to England on a, a scam like, um, in the, the early 90s. And oh, these guys from Sweden, one, it was kind of interesting. It was around the time, just before one of those wars that George Bush probably started, right? 
And the idea was to have um, uh, a, a music festival that like, like FIFA, right? And it was going to take place all over the world and so and so and so and so. It was all going to come uh, eventually end up somewhere for the finals of these groups. And they wanted me to invest, but I got them to invest in me because I turn up with nine pieces of luggage with a fax machine that wouldn't work in England and all this stuff. And we rent this uh, apartment. Uh, I said to the guy who was getting stuff from me, I either get me a really nice apartment or something beautifully horrendous. And it belonged to the ambassador from Ghana, right? And it was renting it out. And I have to go and sign the papers to, and this is worth it, to get the apartment. And while I'm standing there off the Maryland High Street, da 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 you know, signing the thing, I see this little man down the end of the corridor sticking his head out. And I look at him and he comes up to me, says, I don't know whether I should introduce myself to you. He says, I'm not, it's that name on the real estate agent isn't really me. I'm Roy Tempest, but I didn't know whether to say hello to you because I didn't know whether I fucked you or not in the 60s. <laughs> like, that's all that was great. <laughs> <laughs> right? Yeah, metaphorically, you mean. Like financially, yes. no, yeah, yeah, financially, like meaning me and the Stones, like you know, on some period. It was the sixties. Yeah, right. <laughs> um, but but what, what do you think sold? What did you? How did you sell yourself to to the Rolling Stones? What was what were you offering that no one else could? I, you know, you don't add yourself up at that age. You know, I mean, now, okay, I would, I, to me, obviously not to you, because when you, Gary, were young and the same age as me coming into it, you you were going into a different thing where things had changed. You had to be good at the bullshit too yourself. You know, you weren't, I mean, the, the, the Rolling Stones didn't really have to say anything for the first couple of years. You know, they mastered what, let's leave the Beatles out of it because they're a law unto themselves. You know, it's then and everybody else. But what places the Rolling Stones in a thing where they get, where it became people comparing Oh, the Beatles versus the Stones, and place the Beatles above whether it's the Kinks, the Who, or whatever that was coming in, or even the Zombies. Um, uh, like, but we like Colin Blunston. We do. We um, had him on the show. He yeah. used to share an apartment with an actor I really liked on a media called Duncan Brown. Um, he was great. Colin Blunston does a great version of the Jimmy Ruffin thing, right? We love him. Great um, voice. What becomes of Broken Heart? Yeah. Right? yeah. And uh, but you know the other one. I'm sorry, you know, telling telling a club a club in New York, you know, how many uh, BMI plays he's had. I mean, <laughs> <laughs> hold your head up. Five million BMI plays I had on this. Anyway, okay. <laughs> but anyway, I sidetracked because now, in the fullness of time, it seems really obvious that it should have been the Rolling Stones. When you met them, they're the Rolling Stones, right? Yes. Yeah. with no g and it's but, but why what was it th there's clearly something you knew or figured but like you said you've got no blueprint to work with that is like we need to make them the rolling stones because you why? don't um I, I i can't remember the word it's not marginalized it's not or make a diminutive mm -hmm. or you know you're the rolling stones not the roll i mean i can't remember it's probably in, in one of the books but it, was, it yeah. sounded good at the time Right. Yeah. Yeah. No. No. And now it's it seems completely obvious, but I'm just worried at the time to have that. You know. Yeah. No. I get. I get. Well, you know. I mean. See. See. Yeah. Like I didn't. I've never been, quote, successful, the way that I was. I mean, Keith put it very nicely in his book, where he said something to the effect of, "We all got on with Andrew, 
while we all like the same music. That period where I said where the public started taking drugs and you've got John Peel coming in, Alan Freeman suddenly has three hour shows uh, <laughs> as opposed to pop pickers, you know. Um, and the album became the selling point. Um, and also when we went from four track to eight track in that you really couldn't make mistakes. I read a great, you know, a, a great interview, which a friend of mine in, in uh, California, Harvey Kubernick, put together three interviews he'd done with Brian Wilson over the early 2000s, where he is so fucking lucid about the, the difference between tracks and this, mm -hmm. so-and-so. The point is, yeah, four track to eight track, eight track, suddenly you can make mistakes. So I, now, well, I didn't wonder at the time, I just went, oh God, this is complicated. Like, because I come from the ear of what you hear is what you get. Four tracks was too complicated for me. So you're beginning as I mean, a producer. You're going to be the producer of the Rolling Stones, right? Yeah. Yeah. No. But you were saying back then, when they first went into the studio, this was the days of recording when you said the band weren't even allowed to listen back themselves. That's right. they have done. That's right. Well, they're, <laughs> it's they're, extraordinary. Everywhere, in all the most of the, definitely the record company studios, there was this intimidating staircase that took you up to the control room. And being allowed up there. Abbey Road. Abbey Road's the famous one, yeah. Right. And the white yeah. coats and all that. Um, but I guess what you're trying to find as a producer, Andrew, is you were trying to find two things, really. Um, to try and capture the band the way you saw them live. So when people hear the record, they think they, they've got the same impression of you sit, sitting in the railway tavern. But also to find the tracks, because they weren't songwriters, were they? No, they weren't. And to, to, to actually have them try and be as loose or when it worked on stage i knew i mean you've got to, let's, let's separate my fascination with phil Spector and bob crew um to the job at hand with the rolling stones and all the producers i'd met would just add intimidation to the scenario you know and, and would tighten and stiffen the rolling stones up and so therefore i mean i knew about tape lease deals but the, it it Okay, there came a moment, we cut the first single, Come On, right? The engineer, Roger Savage, um, said to me, I said, right, you know, because we had 40 quid, it was five minutes to six, we finished at six. So he said, well, what about mixing it? I didn't know what he was talking about, <laughs> right? So um, I said, well, what's that? And he kind of explained it to me. And so I'm looking at the clock and I'm going, well, you do it. I'll come back and collect it tomorrow, figuring that if he did it, I wouldn't have to pay for it. We wouldn't go over six o'clock, right? Now, after that, I went to Regions Sound and the wonderful Bill Farley, um, an engineer. You know, Regions Sound was mainly a demo studio. They didn't, mm -hmm. okay, they didn't cut many actual masters there, you know, I mean, and Bill, Bill was perfect. He's pure East End and nothing about the Rolling Stones, uh, irritated him he just went okay you know he knew what he was listening to he was good as opposed to some of the other engineers there or other engineers and saying my god they're dirty or whatever whatever all this music was not you know it wasn't brian paul and the tremolers but um and so what we heard in region sound um i knew was the finished record i didn't have to pots around with four channels um and to say that all the, the run in Los Angeles and the run on three tracks in Chicago, it was a womb full of noise. So I became a producer because I figured uh, they might 
behave like they are in front of me, yeah. whereas the chances are they may not or will not in front of right. a producer. Let's talk about how you get that second single, because it was written by the Beatles. I want to be a man. Yeah. Yeah. Well, um, they're rehearsing in Ken Collier's, and uh, I kind of think that if your energy quota is not contributing to what's meant to be going on in the room, leave. You know, go to the bathroom, go out, you know, because it was a terrible, I mean, or a non-productive looking for songs. I had suggested James Ray's uh, If You Gotta Make a Fool of Somebody, right? Well, well ooh, great record, right? Um, and then somebody said, no, nah, Freddie and the Dreamers have got it coming out in two weeks' time. <laughs> and they were still not writing, obviously. And they, I thought, oh, my God. You know, these golden R&B numbers, you know, soon the only people who are going to be able to record them are the searchers. But Chris Curtis had good ears, you know, the, the drummer, really good ears. And I go out and I turn right, <laughs> I walk down to Leicester Square Tube Station and getting out of a cab there, nicely inebriated because they had just received their first Ivan Novello gong or, you know, award was John and Paul. And they knew me well enough. Um, and so I was still Andy um, and it was what's wrong, Andy. And I said, you know, I'm down there with the Stones and we've got nothing to record. Now, if you want to meet Hustlers, you meet John and Paul, okay? Mm -hmm. Like, because uh, they had a song for everybody. And I know you'll understand, and I hope, I know that too. The, in terms of the things that kept you moving and kept the game going, for John and Paul to see three different versions of Misery, Kenny Lynch, Helen Shapiro, and their mm -hmm. own, that on a label, that kept life going. It wasn't yet about um, how much of this company do I own. We, you know, the, the... But there's also, that's the old Tim Pan Alley thing, wasn't it? Whereas your success was how many people did your song, not how big a hit. Yeah, so right. that kind well, of feeding into yeah, that. Dylan, Dylan started yeah. like yeah. that as well, didn't he? I mean, was it yeah. Tambourine Man or Blowing in the Wind? Yeah, exactly. Whatever, you know. that because, and Peter, Paul and Mary yeah. doing... Um, don't think yeah. twice, it's all right, whatever, right? Um, I mean, th there's the great thing. Albert Grossman managed Peter, Paul and Mary, right? And he actually put them together. You know, they weren't singing. He went, that's uh -huh. one. He knew what he could have and what he could do. So he was more than a one-trick pony. Um, and, yeah, the shit, you're quite right. I haven't thought about it. Like, because in the uh, – Mark Winter, who was like an early client of mine in, uh, in the PR Venus in Blue Jeans and stuff, go away, little girl. Um, he could earn more on the road if it was his face as opposed to another cover version on the sheet music. Mm -hmm. You know, it might be 20 quid right. more a week or whatever. And that's, you know, how it worked. You know? There was no competition. Uh, there were, you weren't, th the Stones weren't thinking, well, you know, the Beatles are our main competition. We're, we're the no. opposite to them. We don't want their no, track. Because bands didn't write songs. So... You know, before, so it wasn't really an, an issue. So, did they it? literally go from that taxi and go, "We'll come to the studio with you," or did was was that the day after or what? Yeah, yeah, they came. They did all right. I don't know. Where I mean, were. if you wrote that for a film, it would be too cheesy and unbelievable. It would just be. Too, do you know what I mean? It's like it, that's where life is just beyond Hollywood. Yeah. Yes, let's thought. go to the studio right now. Yeah. No, 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 no. It's not quite that. Let's go to the rehearsal room and we'll the rehearsal room. Yeah, yeah. You know, we were in the Ken Collier 
jazz basement, you know, uh, trying to pull it together. And they came down. I died and went to heaven, man. The first time, you know, when they started to play it, we didn't know and they didn't tell us that uh, Ringo Starr had already recorded it 10 days before. <laughs> right? Because, you know, I mean, I use hustle in the great sense that you're proud of your chops and your goods and you want, uh, you know, fishes and loaves, man, you know. Um, and uh, the moment you heard Brian playing the bottleneck on it, mm. I went, oh, God, you know, I mean, you could hear it, you know. Yeah. And I kind of kind of basically had my first nervous breakdown. And I went to Paris and bought a pair of 46-pound pier cutter and boots. I mean, you know, um, you couldn't wear them outdoors. <laughs> you know, they were riding boots for indoors. How did you know they were there? You, you'd seen them in a magazine, right? Or something. No. The boots. No, I, I just had to get you out of imagined. it. Imagined. It right, was right. just, I had to get out of Ken Collier's Leicester Square, Soho, London. I was just so overcome. <laughs> by the possibility of, because, okay, you're quite right, which when you said there was no competition, there was no that, but mm -hmm. there were no second chances. You were given a recording contract. Right. And if the first single didn't at least get to um, 38 or 40, you weren't going to be given the chance to do another one. Now we had bought a lot of the first, uh, come on, the first record, because it wasn't, very good. In fact, when I mixed it for, um, because they were stiff, you know, understandably. Um, when you say you bought, you mean you, 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 it was like, pay, well, not payola, but, but yeah, yeah. No, it's the chart shops, right? You go to no, the chart shops. Payola, pay, yeah, the chart shops. Yeah. But the Rolling yeah. Stones fans, the people were already wonderful and they wouldn't even let me send them the five and seven shillings postal order which i didn't have <laughs> but did they think this was a bit what the, wouldn't they have thought oh the beatles writing a Ro the rolling stones single this isn't muddy waters man you know are they are they we could we used to you in risk of losing the bass no no not at all it, the most it was I, I refer to these the reviews they would just go written by lennon and mccartney with no comment yeah yeah Right, right. Yeah. Because this rivalry that you called legendary did not exist. You know, there was no show. No, but I know what you mean, but we're talking about an audience. Th these are the people who who kind of two years later are going to be calling Dylan Judas for going electric. And it's just that level of purity. Yeah, exactly. I was kind of prepared for a little backlash from some clever fucker, right? You know, going, oh, you know, like, um, but it wasn't on. That wasn't the game. I mean, this was like, Life was opening up, and even with the, wasn't called the media, but no one was going to get in the way of this new life. Had, uh, you, they, did you? <laughs> oh, no, except the prick in the record mirror, Richard Williams was his name. Richard Green. I'm sorry, there is a Richard Williams. It's not you. Yeah, um, no, he's he's, he's too right? he's too young to be that person. I would have thought. There you go. <laughs> yeah. But he had talked about Keith's skin. So, People are still um, talking about Keith's skin. Yeah. <laughs> no, Keith's skin is beautiful. Yeah. Um, it's certainly hard wearing. Otherwise, I'll start on my... Sorry, you, sorry. Were, you were digressing, and maybe we should pull you back in. Uh, yeah. Because, because, because how you get these boys to eventually be songwriters, the songwriters that we are. What's interesting is, obviously, it ends up as Jagger and Richards, but it was Brian's band. Wasn't Brian ever thinking, yeah. I should be the songwriter here? Or did you oh, not think? See, Brian see, be see, okay, well, okay. The... I'll finish, let me finish with the um, John and Paul thing, right? Mm. I, for, for just pre-COVID, I did a, um, 
a course in a university in British Columbia. How was Nick Mason, by the way? Well, we've both been working with him. He's absolutely. fantastic. Yeah, we absolutely love Nick. Yeah. Fantastic. Had a great tour. Yeah, no, no, like, you know, I went to school with him. Did you? I didn't know that. What? What? No. Why don't we know this? Well, because you're exactly the same age. Of course you are. Yeah. Yeah. Um, there, there was a cram. Nick for 35 years. This has never come up. Well, goes to show. Like, <laughs> Very quiet. Um, yeah. But when I tell you what kind of school it was, um, it was a crammer, right? When you're oh, okay. 12 yeah, yeah. or 13, and instead of having a summer holiday, we went to this place in Lindhurst Gardens uh, off Haverstock Hill, where, oh, they yeah, yeah, yeah. You, where they cram it into you. And um, I did, I may be hallucinating, but I, I do remember visiting Nick's house once because he lived down the other side of Spaniards Inn going towards Golders Green, right? Whatever yeah, that road yeah, is. Yeah, yeah. The amazing thing about Nick Mason is he already had a drum kit. Now we can go to... In, in a room, right. I'm sure, in this house with beams. Um, and he's 12. He had a drunk, right? Yeah. Wow. That's posh. Yeah. Yeah. It's great. You know. Fantastic. I love the connection. Yeah. Um, right. Brian Jones. Okay. Let's Brian, see. Here's yes. the thing where the, it's a, it's, life gets much simpler and goes on as long as it has, you know, Um when you can't sit there and go, I did this and I did that, it's really down to the fact that I was living with Mick and Keith. So had I been living with Brian Jones, you know, but my mother had sort of kicked me out. And so I was rooming in their place um, in uh, uh, Wilsdon. Edith Grove. No, that's... Oh, no, no. Oh, no, it was up in Wilsdon, up in Wilsdon at this point, wasn't yeah. it? Ellsworthy Road. After Freddie and the Dreamers, doing this wonderful James Ray song, if you're going to make a fool of somebody. I mean, as I said, the songs were going to go. And so, I mean, it's as simple as, I didn't say this to him, but I mean, if, like, if Mick can write postcards back to his mother or Christy Shrimpton, and if Keith can play three chords, then they can write songs. That's right. Then anybody yeah. can write a first book or a first song or if I have a first hit record, but can they like Sergeant Barry Sadler, can they repeat it, right? So you lock them um, in, right. you know, history is that you lock them in a room virtually. Sort of. That's like opening the concertina up to... Right. I did, fortunately, the I believe the stairs were carpeted, so I could tiptoe down after I left because I would take my laundry back to the scene Sunday night of the London Palladium Mother who would iron it, <laughs> you know. And, uh, and I tipped back up to see if they were writing. And... They hadn't turned on the radio. I mean, they weren't doing, they were, there was these silence and there was talking. So I kind of figured they are going to get on with it, right? Um, and Brian Jones later, uh, I mean, I can remember the first songs. The worrisome thing is that when I say the first songs were naff, how come I remember them? You know, like, um, but Brian and I put together because I tried to keep this, I mean, I didn't regard it as a split. I just thought, I didn't go, oh, I better humor Brian or that. I just thought, hey, you know, I might as well try and do the same for him as as what uh, was happening with Mick and Keith. And so I put him in a hotel room with Gene Pitney, who was no slouch at writing songs, right? You know, um, and I can remember that awful, what, what came out of it, right? Um, but Brian was this split, it was this strange split personality. I mean, 
um, it's amazing he's having this on social media. The more it goes on, the more that little core people of you all betrayed Brian, you know, mm-hmm. manifests and eats at the seeds of now that the Rolling Stones have become sort of like the Rat Pack, you know. What I mean, <laughs> you know, um, <laughs> you know, there's there's envy from the purists, right. regardless of that. It was his band. He did sign the first contract. He did sign them with Georgia Gomelsky and IBC and Lynn Johns was there. And I remember rehearsing Brian saying, look, you want to leave the stones because they're terrible. The Yardbirds is another group playing that um, R and B circuit. And you've had an offer to go with the Yardbirds. So could these kind gentlemen at IBC, George Clouston and Eric Robinson, the band leader, please let you out of your contract. Here's 90 quid. That worked. Otherwise, I wouldn't have been able to go to Decca and uh, sell them to Decca. Right. I hope that story makes sense. It was really, I will always remember being in Portland Place. Now, Brian, you don't mention the Yardbirds, but have them in your mind. So I was living the sweet smell of success. It was good. You mentioned Gene Pitney, because I, I know that, that when you do your next record, Not Fade Away, which is actually my introduction to the Rolling Stones, because I remember as a kid hearing that record. I remember my dad, I remember my dad, I said to my dad, I like the Rolling Stones more than the Beatles. And he went, no, you can't like them. They're ugly and scruffy. And he was quite upset that my dad found it like it was almost sort of morally I'd made the wrong choice. <laughs> but anyway, Not Fade Away, you mentioned Gene Pitney. They... You did that in America, didn't you? And didn't Gene? No, no, no. Play that was done. Records? That was done in Regent Sound, in Denmark. Street. Oh, so, so what is it? Little by uh, little on the B side. Is, is it, am I wrong to think that Phil Spector's on that record and Gene Pitt? Yes, he is on that. But then he eventually got co- co-writer name because Alan Klein was representing him and the Rolling Stones. Well, um, and. Uh, um, before it was Nanka Felge, but Gene Pitney was a client of mine too, um, and. He came by, and I called him, I said, we're in trouble, because it was not happening, right? Peter Meaden was there, so was um, Graham Nash. So Graham Nash sang on the record? No, they were like... Hanging out? Getting, you know, making it, giving it atmosphere, almost like Joey D and the Starlighters, you know? um, Because he was in the Hollies right there at that point. Because... Yeah, yeah, yeah. Because I'd heard Keith play it in in the rooms that we shared, and I heard a single, man, right? And so, I, I mean, even in the, the level of my enthusiasm, I said, I said, or I vibed that it feels like you wrote it, that Buddy Holly didn't write it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Because he it's, actually you know, did, yeah. So Phil Spector came and he played Maracas, right? And then he went out on the ground floor of the staircase going up <laughs> to whatever it was, right? And um, he chopped out this 12-bar blues little by little with Mick. Then they came in and we had a B-side and that was it, right? And that was the first one that we didn't really have to buy. That went to number four or what, five. Weren't you intimidated as a producer to have Phil Spector in the room? Yes. <laughs> yes. <laughs> yeah, this is, I mean, all no, these people, remember. this, this, is, this is all got, very early on, right? No, you've got this, this, very early. this, this Al Pacino, uh, Lana Clarkson, tragic um, history of Phil Spector now. And um, at that time, in February of 1964, Phil Spector was a total delight to be around. He was made famous in America by um, that book Tom Wolfe wrote, The Candy Colour, whatever it is, right? 
I kind of, <clears throat> my theory or my belief is that Phil Spector decided who he was going to be based on that Tom Wolfe article because the, the lifestyle was totally alien to Tom Wolfe and New York where the first time that, say, uh, um, I mean, Jerry Lee Lewis with the uh, cousin he married. That didn't even make the papers in America. Yeah, yeah. Hang on. It's the candy. It was it was the candy colored tangerine flake streamline baby. There you go. Right? <laughs> the article. And that chapter where to um, get in a national newspaper in America, you had to be Sid Vicious in the Chelsea Hotel. It wasn't Jerry. Jerry Lee Lewis in the Who the fuck is Jerry Lee Lewis? Right. He Jerry Lee Lewis changed our lives, you know. So you're right? saying Phil Spector, um, as we know him, had not been created. It was brewing, but... But to so you guys, he was a god, wasn't he? I mean, he was like, you know, this this idea, he, he, the idea of the Uber producer only existed with him, didn't it? There wasn't anyone well, else. Yeah, like it, it was that element, but also the records. Yeah. I mean, like, but I have to give equal... Uh, um, nod uh, who influenced my life to the guy who produced the four seasons and, and wrote with bob gordia bob crew because bob right. crew was actually uh more generous and unafraid with his time um in, in you know he didn't want to keep it a secret as to how he was making these incredible records right but keith and i spent a lot of time with bob crew Less time than mm -hmm. we did with Phil Spector because by by the time he got to sixty five, you know, there's a change in who Phil Spector is, and uh, but the one that was in England um, was a delight. Um, Andrew, would you mind if we got you back for a part two? Uh, yeah, we, oh, because we're, 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 we've got exactly. so much to do and we're loving you mean, this, but we, we England can't... And Wales. Well, England and Wales are stuff. Because I feel like, well, partly that, and partly because I feel that there's still so much to, that I'd love to cover and we'd, we'd love to talk to you about Immediate and the Small Faces and Humble Pie. I'd like to talk about Mike Pratt. Oh. Well, I'd... I didn't really know him, but Lionel Bart was the next best thing. Well, okay, can I quickly ask you this? Did you once blow up your house putting in a stereo and have to move into the Mayfair Hotel? No. Because I've had, I have a memory of being taken to the Mayfair Hotel and ordering room service when I was about four or five years old. And my mum says, we've gone to see you. Yeah. 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 But was... apparently I, I met you then at the age of about four or five. Wow. Um, That's interesting. <laughs> We're ending this. And I also have a text, someone we haven't got to at all yet, which is why we need part two. Uh, I've actually got a text from her wishing you all the very best, which is from Marianne Faithful. Oh, how nice. That's great. Who you, yeah, who, whom you yeah. discovered. We'll get to that. Who you it, discovered. Exactly. It's very, have to do it's, part it's very apt, Guy, that we end how you actually met Andrew when we started yes. with how you really met Andrew. <laughs> yeah. um, oh, right. <laughs> Good. Uh, Andrew, Good. it's absolutely Fantastic listening to you. Oh, thank you both. And um, yeah, and yeah. We, we'll it arrange really with our producer. I hope is as good as we have been today. We're going to arrange our producer uh, to to get in touch with you, and we'll get you back right. in, a, in a in a couple of weeks or something, Brilliant. or a week or so. Take care. Thank you, right. sir. Uh, I got, it's been an absolute joy, Andrew. Thank you so All much. All the best. I think we did the right thing to to decide to make this a, a part two. I think there's, there's just so much because I've got to say his his recall and his ability for tangent is is absolutely gobsmacking and we all know that when you look down to see your podcast and it says two hours or something it's quite intimidating yeah. 
So, uh, but but I don't. I think there's so much left with him. I mean, so much. There's so much left. But what's so nice is is that is that all the the sidebar stuff is so great. This is this is you know Isn't this it? guy's going to be a uh, you know he's 79, 80. You know, they're all reaching that. Age. I often think when I listen to people of that age talking about pop music, it reminds me of when I was in the 70s watching old soldiers on World at War. You know, talking about such a <laughs> yeah, bygone exactly. era. And, you know, now they're all gone. Yeah. You know, this is all about, you know, getting those It's stories. true. It's like the Richmond Hotel, which I've kind of heard, you know, I've done more history research in my life. The Richmond Hotel is more than 1066 or whatever. And, I, and the Richmond Hotel has become like the football match on the Western Front on Christmas Day. Yes. It's a sort of was, absolute marker. I of think George Ogomelsky was there too. Didn't he manage one of those sides? <laughs> <laughs> anyway listen thank you for listening we will get uh, andrew lou golden back very very soon and uh, you can listen to the rest of his story because it is absolutely fascinating yeah, it is amazing and i'm well, assuming that you're all going to be as entranced as we have been so yes yes and until then uh, thank you to our producers uh we had ian today didn't we and we did have Ian. and thank uh, you ian. thank you ian because ben has a has, is not very well but um Thank you to Gimme Sugar, and uh, it's good night from me. And it's good night from them. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear, and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade.